Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome to another Conspiracy Unlimited Plus episode for premium subscribers. In his new book on borrowed fame, money, mysteries, and corruption in the entertainment world, author Don Jeffries explores the concept of fame in all its fleeting glory and confounding inconsistency. Why do so many entertainers do so much better financially than peers who have comparable resumes? Don also examines a subject he's quite familiar with, the myriad of unnatural deaths which have plagued the entertainment industry since the dawn of Hollywood. On Borrowed Fame will be of a great interest to fans, celebrities, and anyone with even a curious affinity for the world of show business. Don Jeffries, how are you, my friend? Fine, Richard. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. On Borrowed Fame, Money, Mysteries, and Corruption in the Entertainment World. You draw a distinction between fleeting fame and greatness, which is fame that just goes on and on and on, enduring fame. Why did you choose to write about mainly the fleeting variety of fame? Well, I think that's what fascinates me because, you know, we can't, the enduring greatness things like, you know, we can't really relate to someone like Shakespeare, almost mythological, or even the Beatles or something like that, maybe in our time. But people that were on a sitcom, you know, 50 years ago, and then they weren't any, they didn't do anything else in the entertainment career. They went on to, you know, normal lives or people that were in rock bands that maybe had a couple top 10 hits. And uh, that was it. They didn't get royalties as they should have. And then they went and worked in the regular, you know, those kind of people fascinate me more. I can relate to them because they had their moment in the sun and uh, they experienced what all of us dream about, at least for time, you know, the applause of audiences and and it went away. So I, I'm fascinated by that. People that were once famous and then they kind of drifted back into obscurity. That's, I don't know, it's always has fascinated me. You know, the, the whole concept of uh, 15 minutes of fame, which of course Andy Warhol, who's probably the ultimate example in our life of, of someone who was famous for being famous. And uh, that's really the only thing he's remembered for now. It's saying everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. And uh, but that's had, I guess, a longer lasting than the actual fame he was describing. The book is kind of a cautionary tale, uh, certainly in, in the words of many of the people that you spoke to. For example, very prolific actor, Italian-Canadian actor, Nick Mancuso, he writes a blurb for the book. He writes, fame is not a blessing, it's a curse. This book is a witness to the carnage and horrible truth of the matter. Fame is not what it appears to be on the outside. Fame is a glamorous car wreck. Fame sucks. This is an important book that tells us all as fellow human beings that attention must be paid. It seemed to me you get you got that a lot from some a lot of the people that you talk to in the entertainment field that that yeah. ha- had this fleeting fame. But Nick Mancuso is, you know, he's one of the most prolific actors in Hollywood, over 155, I think, films yeah. to his credit. And, you know, great. And those are the kind of people that, and it shows you the power of, I guess, the written word is that Nick Mancuso was brought, I mean, I had heard of him. But, I did, but he actually was brought to my attention that he was a fan of my writing. And so I said, wow, that's really cool. I looked up his credits and I said, man, this guy's been in everything. And uh, so, and I think he's living in Paris. So he was on my show a couple of times and he's really kind of a uh, Renaissance man. He's really brilliant. He's a great writer himself and uh, just, you know, wonderful talking to him. He has great observations and he obviously he's completely on, on a different wavelength than people in Hollywood. But uh yeah, he's the perfect example, I guess. He's a working actor. And as he says, you know, fame sucks. I don't, I don't know how many people would think that, but that, you do seem to get that. Again, that, that's from the people maybe, although in his case, he didn't really, he worked consistently. So, uh, you know, him having that attitude, I don't know. But people that, you know, maybe were in the limelight briefly, they were on a, you know, 
and I analyze it in the book, I talk about the cast members, a lot of these shows that uh, never did anything else. They're, they're IMDb credits and at when the show does. And you wonder, is it, can they not get any more work or uh, most of them, maybe in modern times, they made a little, they made more money, but I don't think any of them on their shows made enough. They weren't working on two and a half men or Seinfeld or something where they are set for life. Uh, so you wonder, I don't know, did they get enough of it? Did they just get burned out or were they typecast? It's, you know, back to you know, the early days when people like Fred Wynn and Herman Munster, you know, people were typecast and frustrated or even Alfalfa and Little Rascals who, who hated it when they would say sing off key for us you know, as an adult. And uh, so I don't know, I guess maybe it's, uh, but you get this strain when you look at, especially in the actors, how many of them want to do something else? So if they're TV stars, they want to be movie stars. Uh, or sometimes they want to, you know, be in music. And you know, a lot of the musicians want to be actors and so forth. So I, I, maybe you always want what you don't have. I don't know. Begin the book with a story about Spanky McFarlane from The Little Rascals. Yeah. Uh, and our generation, we we obviously we watched we watched them in endless repeats because they were made back in the 1930s, I guess. So over 80 years ago, tell us about Spanky McFarlane. He was an adorable childhood actor. What happened to him? Yeah, well, he, he was the, I think the main, the main reason I was inspired to write this book. And uh, I was a huge fan of, of the Little Rascals, our gang, and uh, you know, watched them endlessly. And I, one of my, a book that was very influential to me uh, was called Our Gang, The Life and Times of, Little Ra- of How Roaches Little Rascals, written by Leonard Malton and Richard W. Bann. Uh, I began correspondence with Richard W. Bann. As a matter of fact, but I, you know, I saw him, I was a, a junkie of our gang. I knew all the titles and everything, but Spanky was my favorite. And I saw him on a, um, a talk show, maybe Sally, Jesse, Raphael or something, early 90s, shortly before he died. And he just seemed uh, very sad, seemed a little bitter. And uh, at the time we were just first married and uh, around, the ta- around the corner from our townhouse was a restaurant called Spanky's Clubhouse. And it had this clear likeness of Spanky. And I thought, wow, I wonder how many things out there are like that. And I, I just, in my head, I just thought, I wonder if Spanky gets a cut of that. And uh, then I read in the paper that he was, at the time he died, he could see he tragically died. And uh, he was suing another restaurant, I think in New Jersey. And of course, he was still in litigation when he died. And my friend, Bob Wilson, uh, who helps a lot with the research, he still goes to a Spanky's restaurant in Florida. And I think he did get a one-time payment of $5,000 or something it's a small change compared to, and he said to have been really upset going to New York City for the first time and seeing the memorabilia and stuff because he didn't get any of that. And I thought, you know, how many other people? So he's one that started me down that road because then I started thinking about the three students who were even bigger when I, when we were kids. And uh, so I, I talked to uh, both Mo Howard's uh, daughter and son, both. And, uh, you know, verify that, of course, they got nothing from it. And I remember as a little kid seeing an, an, an old Larry and Mo on the local UHF channel we had out here, you know, hawking T-shirts. And it was really pathetic. And I thought, something's just, you know, I wrote Survival of the Ridges. So something seems terribly unfair about, uh, you know, the people that uh, produce these things. Certainly Hal Roach, who lived to be 100 now, most of the rascals. He made a fortune and uh, the, the producers of the Three Stooges were, were making money. And later, you know, producers like Erwin Schwartz and Aaron Spelling and television shows, they made millions on these reruns, but the actors didn't. And I, you know, it's something to me, that just, it, it's, you know, it strikes at the heart of my core being, you know, I, I don't like that kind of unfairness. And I, I just thought, you know, if you, if you create an iconic character like that, still being exploited in terms of likeness and image decades later, you should be getting something 
for it. So I thought, how would I feel if I was Spanky or one of the three stooges? And <clears throat> I saw, you know, all these generations, generations after I was, you know, doing this stuff, uh, you know, being fans of mine, buying my t-shirts and lunchboxes and all these things that they sold. And I got nothing from it while somebody was getting something from it. So that, that was what really started me on the book. Of course, the book's about a lot more than that, but it really was the fact that I, that I think so many of these performers, uh, especially from the older days, were, were not compensated fairly. You point out in the book that it was, I think it was Spanky's parents who actually sold the rights to Spanky's name and likeness to Hal Roach or to Roach Studios yeah. in, a, in a contract in the mid-30s. That's kind of a common theme in, in Hollywood yeah. with childhood actors where, I don't know if that was the case in, in Spanky McFarland's family necessarily, but parents taking advantage really of their own children, you know, setting up a, a trust fund maybe for their kids, uh, but then right. draining the accounts and so forth. Did you, did you run into that quite a bit? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Jack, Jackie Coogan is, uh, you know, the most famous one. Most people today, if they remember him, that all they remember him is Uncle Fester, the right. television series Adam Cup. But he was a prolific child actor, really the first, the first really huge child actor. You know, he was famously in movies with, uh, uh, Charles Kaplan, Wallace Beery, things like that. He got he was renowned for it. He and he made I think a million dollars, which was incredible about back in that time. But uh, when he came of age, he saw there was nothing there, and uh, so he was naturally irate. And I have the quotes from his stepfather and mother in the book. They're very cold quotes, you know, our money not his, and you know, Jackie was a bad boy. I think his mother said, you know, crazy stuff. And I thought, wow, that had you know, you you earned this money and theoretically a million dollars then was about twelve million in today's salary. He should have been set for life, really. I mean, in those days, that you know, that would have set you financially. It was like you struck it rich in the stock market, and to not have that, that had break your heart. And so, the, because of that, the Coogan Law was passed, which was supposed to protect child stars, but it really didn't. Uh, Shirley Temple went through the same thing. She had very little left of her, and again, she earned even more money than she was. You know, she was the only thing that kept the 20th Century Fox afloat during the Great Depression. Uh, she was their biggest star, very small star, but the biggest star, and. Um, but obviously, the Coogan law it may have worked for some people, but you go into more modern times and you have people, um, you know, examples like Eric Coleman and Dana Plato, different strokes, who both, again, you know, tragically didn't make it with Dana Plato, ended up killing herself. Gary Coleman then had no money. He was forced to work as a security guard. His parents still took his money. And I don't, I don't know how that happened with the Coogan law in effect, but somehow it did. <clears throat> and Paul Peterson, who's uh, become a friend of mine through on social media, who uh, started in the Donna Reed show himself, he was inspired to start the wonderful group, A Minor Consideration, some years ago. And they try to help a lot of these child actors that come on hard times. He's done some great work, but still a lot of them fall through the cracks, as, as Gary Coleman and Dana Plato certainly are witness. But you, you see it, and there, there seems to be more tragic stories than not of kids. But I, but I think being a child star puts you in a special category because you basically – it's, it's got to give you a feeling as a human being if, you know, once you hit puberty, you're considered over the hill. You know, that you're, you know, it looks like, you know, you're past your peak. Most people are not, they haven't reached, come close to reaching it. So I think uh, mentally and emotionally that just, you know, that have, being a child star is an experience that, you know, does damage this inevitably to most of these. Child stars. And, and then we have foreign actors who come to America. Bella Lugosi, of course, a classic yeah. example who played the iconic Count Dracula in 1931, but was used and abused and taken for granted and, and ripped off from the get-go. Was that because of the language barrier? He, he didn't have a good manager? What happened to Bela Lugosi? Well, I think certainly the language barrier was, was, was an important aspect of it. But I think 
you know, a lot of the, it, like any job, I think, you know, if you're, if your management sees that they can take advantage of you, especially if you don't have a union or something, they will. They know you'll work for less or you're just, they'll do it. Bill Lugosi was famously paid $33,500. $3,500 for Dracula. $3,500 for Dracula. And in the same cast, David Manners, who played Jonathan Harker, you know, fourth or fifth down the, the credits, much more minor role, uh, made 14000 So it wasn't that they were being really cheap. They just took advantage of him. And once he, once they knew they could do that, then the studios kept doing it. And that's what, that's what happens everywhere. I, I give the example of Robert Taylor, and he certainly was no foreigner. But Robert Taylor, for whatever reason, they saw something in him that he would work cheaper. And Louis B. Mayer and MGM was paying him nothing. He was, I mean, I, I forget the figure, but I have it in the book. And it's shocking. And, of course, there was nobody there. You know, and I, I'm sure it's been that way with you, too, in your jobs where bosses don't like necessarily for you to find out what other people are making. And I think one, one reason for that is because they are kind of paying people at different rates. And I think a lot of it is not because you're necessarily a better worker always, but I think if they, they if someone's naive or they think they can take it to them, well, again, it's human nature. And I think that was Bela Lugosi's case. He wanted to work. Apparently, he didn't care a whole lot. I mean, I'm thinking three thousand five hundred dollars in 1931 was a lot of money. So maybe for him, coming from uh, Hungary, you know, uh, it probably was even more than it would be for the average. But the uh, the idea, you know, I, I don't know that he knew how much money David. Made. I mean, that that would have really you know, driven somebody crazy if you know that somebody that. I mean, how would you feel? You're the star of the film, and some guy that's a you know a supporting role is making uh, you know three almost four times what you made. Um, so that's that's you know I don't know maybe that's why he eventually uh, turned to drugs and ended up uh, you know making those uh, arming uh, pictures with Ed Wood. But uh, he uh, he's he was probably the secondary inspiration for the book. Certainly taken advantage of. Where were his colleagues and fellow actors like Boris Karloff and and Basil Rathbone uh, who were handsomely paid yes. uh, and they appeared together i think in some other universal studio films why yeah. weren't they watching out for him well as far as actors i don't know but i do know that the the director of uh, i think son of frankenstein knew what they were trying to pay bela and he took he he felt bad for him he he basically dragged his scenes out to the course of the movie because i think they wanted to pay bela almost nothing and film all his scenes in one week and uh, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. So he angered the studio, but he just kept him there all the time and he dragged it out. So he got a little bit more money. So he did look out for him. Uh, and you know, Boris Karloff, I think, is on the record of saying poor Bale, he was taken advantage of. But I, I guess it wasn't, you know, in the interest. They hadn't formed um, when United Artists. When was that formed? Right? Maybe United Artists was about to be formed. It wasn't. I don't know if the Guild really did that. I don't know if they ever did that, really, if they bargained on, on behalf of other actors. I think it's kind of always been every person for themselves. Other people, uh, for instance, uh, uh, you had Anne Borshev, Anne Vorak, who's one of my favorite early talkie actors who uh, doesn't get the credit Betty Davis and some other rebels do. He was pretty much actually the first one to go against the studio system. And she was getting paid almost nothing. I have the figures in the book where she was getting paid, I think, the same thing as her little four or five-year-old son in the movie, classic pre-code talkie three on a match. And what a great performance. But uh, she found out she was getting paid almost nothing, the same thing as this kid was getting paid. And she, she broke from the studio and her career was never the same. Yeah, they didn't have any protection back then. But uh, so I guess when they tried to, it usually didn't work. And um, you know, again, it's hard. The people that at that time, I'm sure, wouldn't have felt sorry for them because they were making a lot more money than the average person. 
But when you look at it in context of how some of them were so so underpaid, and then, of course, the fact that their work continues to be seen constantly or, or here and around the world, even to this day, uh, it's a shame that the, you know they didn't get more for the reruns. And when they did pass a, a law later on down the road about the reruns and for movies, I think it was I think the demarcation was 1962 or something. But it was it was movies before a particular date that they were shown on television. The actors got nothing after that date. They got a little something. Again, I, why they made a mark like that, I don't know. But I'm sure that the older actors that appeared mostly in the really old films didn't uh, didn't really like that. The cult classic Napoleon Dynamite is is a tragic story. Uh, although John Hedder has gone on to do other things, but yeah. he, here he is playing the title character in this. It's a very famous film, Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. I don't know how much box office it did, but tell us about John Hedder and and the paltry sum he was paid. Yeah, I think was I think it was a thousand dollars. I have the figure in the book, and from what I can determine, though, I, I don't know if that was quite the Bela Lugosi case. I think that was just a really low budget film. So I don't know that how much money the other. I, I talked to Ellen Dubin, who played uh, Uncle Rico's girlfriend, as kind of a bit role in it, and uh, she told me, yeah, not, you know, nobody was paid much. But if you look at the film, it's part of its charm is they uh, used a lot of uh, Idaho extras that were from Idaho. So you have scenes with, you know, real Idaho farmers and it's kind of cool, you know, and, you know, have that look, uh, you know, weathered look on them and everything. It gives, I think, adds something to the film. So it probably had a very small budget. So, and it did, as you say, lead to, you know, better things for at least John Heater. So, uh, but I use that because I still thought, you know, a thousand dollars for the lead role in a film. I don't know. It seems to me a pittance, but, you know, what do I know? I've, I've never produced a movie. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the music business. You got to know singer-songwriter Graham Parker a little bit. He talked about the money was everywhere in the music industry in the 70s and 80s, but I guess it just wasn't finding its way into the, into the, into the artist's hands. Well, some again, it was, it's like the rest of our society where uh, a few acts really, really cleaned up, like something like the Eagles. You know, the, I use the Eagles as an example of a band that it struck at exactly the right time. They, can, they became big the early 70s. Right when album rock was beginning, people like me were, you know, buying scores of albums, you know, every month. I mean, we had so much money that was spent on music and of course going to concerts too. So between the touring and, uh, and of course, then once they, you know, cassettes became popular, we bought all the same things on cassettes so we could listen to them in the car. So they, they made tons of money so that all of them were worth uh, hundreds of millions of dollars. And Mick Dagger himself said that uh, there's really only been a, a pocket of about 20 years, I forget the years, but it's about 20 years, uh, when music, when musicians, you know, rock artists made a lot of money. And outside of that, before that, we know they did because they just didn't get paid, as I show in the book. And then after that, the musicians today are really, uh, you know, I mean, Taylor Swift, people like that make a lot of money. But I, I put the figure in the book uh, where she had to sell, I, I think, you know, just... I don't know how many millions of plays on Spotify or whatever it was to get uh, whatever, you know, not that, you know, million dollars or whatever it was. But uh, so the streaming music services today that are you know used, they, they give the artists very little. And so it's kind of unfortunately gone full circle and it's gone all the way back to the early days when the Beatles, even the Beatles and the Rolling Stones typically get one to two pennies per record and to split that up among the band figure out how many records you had to sell to get anything. It's, it's kind of come full circle now where an artist that has his music appear online 
whether it's iTunes or uh, you know, Spotify or whatever. I mean, they're complaining all the time. They get all this neck. A couple of the artists, Danny O'Keefe, I talked to, uh, had a, a great hit, uh, Good Time Charlie's Kind of Blues, early 70s hit. He told me, look into that. You know, the artist gets almost nothing from this. A couple of people told me that. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate because, uh, again, I think that you do have a few super acts who are fabulously wealthy beyond our comprehension. But for the most people, like Graham Parker, I mean, he's, he's doing okay. But, uh, you know, he sold millions of records. And uh, there's a lot of other people like him that, I mean, he's probably 70 years old and he's still touring. Then there's a whole different category, and that is the old bluesmen and the old R&B performers, African-Americans, who got less than nothing. I mean, they were just yes. totally ripped off. Yes, yeah, absolutely. They, they, and, you know, I, uh, probably the most poignant email I received was from Bretton Wood, who had a one-hit wonder, give me some kind of sign, girl, I think probably 19, I want to say 67, 68. Uh, you know, I had the 45, I bought it. And uh, he got right back to me and, you know, it wasn't real literate of an email, but it was very, I, I quoted the book, it was very touching because he said, you know, they, the studio, you know, the, the, the record company thought I'd be happy if they bought me a car. And uh, that was basically, but, you know, this goes back to Fats Waller, you know, who's, who's, you know, who's, again, one of the more prolific songwriters. A lot of these artists wrote their own material back then. I mean, uh, not that many were back then, but somebody like Fats Waller was a songwriter and a performer and, you know, a captivating performer. But he, uh, you know, notably one time uh, gave away a bunch of songs to, to somebody for a bag of hamburgers. You know, so that's, you know, that, I mean, I, I, so maybe he got more than some of the people did that, but, uh, you know, it's just all, all of them, but you're right. The black performers definitely got paid less. And I think uh, I give some of the examples in the book of artists who claim they never received a royalty. And uh, it's just, and it's not as white artists as well. I think it's Waylon Jennings that, that said recently, I think he first had his first royalty recently or something. Again, I have, a, I have so many names in the book. I don't remember exactly, but it's shocking to think that somebody could be that famous for that long. And how do you not get any royalties? But, the problem is when you're dealing is I think it was uh, John Fogarty, Pretty's Clear Art Revival, again, who huge hits, wrote all the, their songs. I mean, I don't know how many top 10 singles they have, but people understand their music. It's you know, obviously a soundtrack of the era. And he, I have a quote from him in the book where he said, basically, I had to sue every time to get any royalties. And, you know, it's, especially some of the black performers, maybe they won't sue. Trenny Lopez, who, you know, had some hits in the early 60s, if I had a hammer, Lemon Tree. He, you know, again, he died, like a lot of these people have since I first started contacting him, but very pointed emails from here asking me to help him get his money. And uh, I, I thought I was a lawyer. I said, no, I'm not a lawyer. And uh, so I don't know how many people there were like that. And of course, there were so many others like Frankie Lyman. You know, why do fools fall in love? You know, he, he's another one who was an early songwriter, early black songwriter and, and a performer as well. Died tragically young of you drug. But uh, so, you know, who knows how many were like that? I, I doubt that Frankie Lyman had a dime. I'm just guessing the way the way it was. Maybe they paid for his drugs. I, I don't know. That's typically what happens in the music business, especially back then. And I had so many people that told me that, you know, we were young, early 20s. <clears throat> The record company gave us a contract. Do you think we read the fine, <laughs> read the fine details? Of course not. And they were so excited to have a contract. They were so excited to be touring. And typically, the record company they would maybe buy them a car. They would uh, set them up in the finest hotels and room service. And if they you know, get them drugs, if they needed, obviously had groupies galore. 
So basically, they had everything. They were in heaven for the average, you know, early 20s guy. I mean, what, let's face it, what more could you have wanted? But then when the smoke cleared, you know, and, they're, and they've, they've had their two or three hit singles and their three or four albums, the band breaks up. And then they're looking around, aren't we supposed to get some royalties? And then and that's when you find out, uh, well, no, actually, you know, <laughs> we don't know where those are, but then are you going to sue the record company? And again, how much money do you have to do something like that? So it's, it's sad. It's, it's a sad story because it's a, it's a tale of kind of people that experience the absolute highs of life, being on a stage and being cheered, having, you know, girls come to your dressing room that are complete strangers that just want to speak with you because of who you are things that every young guy fantasizes about, but at the end of the day, it's not lasting. And then you look back and say, wow, I got, my records are still selling and I'm not getting anything for it. So I, I can really empathize as, you know, as a creator of, of some work myself, I, I understand how it works. And it's just unfortunate the way our, our system works is that the creator of anything seems to get the least amount. Whoever puts that out there into the marketplace to reaps the lion's share of benefits. It's called the music business for a reason. And yeah. uh, the, you have the musicians. They're not business people. Sometimes they are. I've gotten to know J.J. French, who was the, one of the founding members of Twisted Sister. And he was very, very, or is very uh, astute. Uh, has a great business, business mind. I was responsible really for marketing the band and licensing. That's how they're making their money and licensing their music. But there are so many, obviously, who just get into it because they're musicians, they're artists. They really have no sense of, no business sense at all. And they get taken to the cleaners. There's a great quote in your book from Hunter S. Thompson. He, he writes, the music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. <laughs> Yeah, that's Hunter Thompson. I, you mentioned uh, some, some, and some of the people in the music business were that way. They were a suit. One, one example was Dave Clark with the Dave Clark Five. Yes. Well, the rest of the band did nothing, and they they led tragic lives. And again, I list some of the examples. You know, I, and I've heard people, my friends especially, tell me, "My God, this book is so depressing." I said, "Look, I, I'm just laying it out there. It is what it is." But uh, Dave Clark was a suit. As a couple of people told me, that he knew he always knew what he was doing. He always knew the business. He knew how to market, and so he's done very well. And uh, but there are not a whole lot of uh, ones like that. And another one who was pretty astute actually was Chuck Berry. Yes, Chuck Berry did pretty well, even though he was ripped off constantly. I mean, you know, the Beach—he threatened. I think he threatened the Beach Boys manager, who at the time was Murray Wilson, the father of Brian and, and Carl Wilson. And uh, he threatened them because they stole you know, his riff from uh, Sweet Little Sixteen for the opening to uh, Fun Fun Fun. I think it was. And uh, he just, they just gave him the rights to the song. So uh, he did pretty well, but there's, uh, there's lots of others, obviously, who didn't do very well. You know, Sly Stone, and Sly and his family Stone was, you know, famously living homeless for, I was homeless for a while. Uh, you wonder how that can happen. But if you look at how the business works, if they're not giving you royalties, and if you don't have the wherewithal to hire uh, attorneys, and even if you do, and make sure you hire the right attorneys. We know how the court system is for everything. And you're going up against these uh, record companies. They have the best attorneys possible. And uh, they're, you're, you know, we see, unfortunately, a lot of times, the only way these artists, and I have examples of them in the book, the only way that their heirs get their royalties is long after they're dead. You know, then, then their families finally reap it. Like Marvin Gaye is a perfect example. Right? He made millions for Motown. Motown, Black Run label, Barry Gordy was no better. 
than the other. They ran the, they, they did not treat their artists well at all. Most of them got ripped off. I mean, Diana Ross made out well, I guess maybe because she was sleeping with Barry Gordy, but not many of the others. And uh, Marvin Gaye is a perfect example of that. And he, uh, I, I put in the book, and after selling millions and millions of records, he was living in his van. And then he kind of had a resurgence of his career. And then he you know, tragically gets shot and killed by his father. And then after he died, uh, you know, and then the prophets seemed to come in again. You know, once once they die, then the uh, the heirs usually get, they fight over it, but they usually get something. But unfortunately, it's uh, too late for the artists who actually created the music and should have been rewarded. There's the, the issue of performers being taken to the cleaners financially or not being properly compensated. And then there are those who basically burned their way through their money with alcohol and drugs. Yeah. Did you did you come any closer to understanding why so many artists, actors, musicians die tragically either from alcohol addiction or drugs? Is it the fame or if they had if they had if, if fame had passed them by entirely and they had they were selling shoes in Peoria, Illinois, would the same thing have happened to them, do you think? Well, that's and I addressed that in the book. Is it why does and that, that's why this showbiz interests me? One of the main reasons is because it's very much like the political world. They're the only two industries that I know of that have this alarming rate of unnatural deaths, murder, suicide, unexplained, where you don't, you know, never really investigate it properly. But yes, drugs are very prevalent, especially in the music business. And so, and that's why it's easy a lot of times to, uh, to attribute any of the deaths of musicians. You know, okay, look, it was a heroin addict, case closed, and they still have some foul play involved, of course. But I think some of it is uh, just the way it works, peer pressure. You know, if you, if you enter a field where that's the standard, it probably takes somebody really strong not to get involved in that. I don't know how anybody in this, you know, by the time, like, say, Kurt Cobain or somebody like that became, uh, you know, addicted to hard drugs. I don't know how anybody could be a heroin addict in any time. You, you certainly should have enough knowledge about it. By that point. You know, you know, you don't want to go there, especially there. But uh, for whatever reason... The music industry lends itself to this kind of behavior. And I've never really understood. Same thing with suicide. It, to me, the people where you should have high suicide rates for people that are working hard physical labor jobs and not getting paid much for them. I think they would be. Yeah, you know, leading, they, leading lives of quiet desperation. Exactly. But, but they don't. They don't kill them. They should be the ones jumping out of windows. But it's the people that seem to have it all. That, uh, you know, they have the accolades and, 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 you know, are bothered by people asking for their autographs and things like that. They're the ones that for some reason seem to want to get, and that's why I, you know, I suspect sometimes maybe they didn't kill, kill themselves as attributed to. And so that's why I look into a lot of these cases here because I find it hard to believe that, that so many people would want to walk away from a life like that. But it's, it's a convenient excuse. You know, John Bellucci is a perfect example where we heard so many things about his, you know, he was a troll. He was, and I think that was horribly exaggerated. And, uh, and since the book was published, you know, I, I already suspected that John Bellucci was really interested in JFK. Found out more information since then. And I found I found that Dick Gregory had written a while. I don't know how I didn't find it while I was writing the book, but so it didn't make it in the book. But Dick Gregory had written that uh, the night before he died, very similar to Freddie Prince, who I covered in Hidden History, that he had called Mark Lane, John Bellucci had, and said, hey, I have some information about the JFK assassination. Also, since found out that's in the book, that he, uh, one of the local reporters in Dallas said they got sick. She got sick of interviewing because every time she interviewed him, he'd say, you're from Dallas. That's the city that killed my president. But clearly he had a huge interest in that subject. So 
now look at his death. You know, already is mysterious, but it adds a little extra layer there, especially when you compare, uh, you know, friends who I know had an interest in the JFK assassination and Sal Minio, who stabbed to death and he was uh, set to play Sirhan Sirhan in Orson Welles, a film that was never completed at the RFK assassination. So who knows how many others are out there like that we just don't know about. It took me a while to find out that Bellucci. So I think there could be political reasons, maybe not all JFK assassination, but some of these people maybe were 9-11 truthers. I don't know. Uh, so that part of it intrigues me. When I when I hear about some of these stars' death, that most of them are strange. Very few of them die, you know, in the, in the way most of us people do. They're very odd things. You know, what really happened? Brittany Murphy, you know, George Superman Reeves, things like that. What's going on there? A lot of times, there's not even any cause of death. There's no conclusive cause. It's just kind of dropped. And I try to find updates on these, some of these stories. You never do. You know, they say they were so waiting for autopsy results, and you never get them. So. I'm naturally suspicious to that. So I throw all that in the book as well, because I think people hopefully will be interested in that as well. An interesting one that I, I remember uh, Carol Wayne from The Tonight Show and and, yes, yes. and people younger than us w- wouldn't necessarily because she didn't she wasn't a huge Hollywood star by any stretch. But Johnny Carson kind of turned her into a bit of a star because of his, I guess, uh, his skits on The Tonight Show yes, and she would yes. be featured and she was a buxom blonde and she played kind of the dits. I'm sure she wasn't mm-hmm. that way. I'm, you know, I'm sure she was pretty, pretty intelligent, but uh, uh, she died mysteriously. Was it in Mexico? Yeah, and absolutely. And she, again, the death there is she drowned in, I think, uh, I want to say two to three feet of water. Yeah, I don't know how you drowned in two to three feet of water. I don't know how it's possible. And, and what's really amazing is the guy, and I apologize, I have so many names in the book. The index is almost 100 pages long in the names. There are so many names. But the individual that was the last person that traveled to Mexico with him also happened to have been the last person that was with uh, Art Linkletter's daughter, Diane Linkletter, before she jumped out of a window. Killed herself. So this guy was at the scene of two notable deaths and doesn't seem to have been questioned for either one. But certainly in, in Carol Wayne's death, he should have been. Uh, I communicated with John Blythe Barrymore, who is uh, related to the Barrymore family. And uh, Carol Wayne's sister, I think, had briefly uh, had, was married into the Barrymore family. So it, however it is, like, I think his, uh, John Blythe Barrymore's uh, half-sister is Drew Barrymore, I think. And there was another strange death, another one that Harrison, she was just found dead in the car. I mean, and so his email I quoted in there is interesting. He's clearly suspicious about it. And, you know, he said, yeah, of course we wondered about that. And again, it was not properly investigated. I don't know if they ever came up with a, you know, an actual explanation. They can't say she killed herself. Accidental, two or three feet, even if you're dead drunk. I mean, I guess, but I don't think she was. I don't think there was, it was in her system. So those are the kind of things that intrigue me about this business because you don't see that anywhere else. And of course, when they don't explain it, and that's why, you know, I, I'm I'm open to Randy Quaid's Star Whackers theory because tell us about yeah, crazy, brilliant yeah. actor. I think yes, absolutely, very unappreciated actor. Randy Quaid kind of went off the deep end and actually was living in exile in Canada for a short time here in Toronto. I think tell us about uh, the Star Whacker theory and Randy Quaid. Yeah, well, he's, he's uh, you know, and he's, of course, you got to remember, too, he is a great actor. So when you're seeing these videos of him, you know, he has a huge white beard, which kind of gives him an extra presence, you know, on camera. And uh, I think he's become a big Trumpster, too. But he's, he puts out these videos that are, you know, really kind of, is he acting? I don't know. He's a great actor. But he has been caught, you know, uh, you know in, 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 inhabiting with his wife, you know, empty houses and things like that. And you're not sure what happened to all his money. He made a ton of money. 
but he's talking about the Star Wacker theory, and, and he basically thinks that uh, it's somebody, someone is whacking stars, you know, and I don't think he really comes up with a reason why they're doing it. I think it's, I think it's thesis, I understand it is, they just do it, it's just, you know, it's star whacking, maybe to create controversy, and I think if you look at a lot of these deaths, like Brittany Murphy, I mean, you know, why would anybody want to kill her? Her death is exceedingly strange, and then her husband dies just as strangely like two months later. So something's, I, I don't know what it is that's going on there, but it intrigues me. And I think a Star Whacker theory where there's a hit squad going out there, I don't know, maybe to create create controversy in Hollywood? I, I really don't know. And of course, in some cases, you know, like Belushi or Freddie Prinze or Salminio, there may be a political reason for it. Uh, the others, and in fact, in Brittany Murphy's case, there may be a political reason because she was actually associated in uh, some way with Julia Davis, who was a, a whistleblower, who uh, was, uh, it was going up against the government. I think she was claiming they were letting terrorists in or something, something like that. But it was controversial. And some, I don't know why she was hooked up with Brittany Murphy, but Brittany Murphy was supposed to be a character witness for us. There's, there's strange circumstances pretty much when you scratch a little bit behind any of these. Fine, but yeah, Randy, Randy Quaid's theory is as good as any. When we're talking about actors or artists, whether television, film, music, and let's say they don't die under mysterious circumstances, they just, they burn out, they, they drink themselves to death, they commit suicide, but trying to understand why there are so many in the entertainment field that go that way. And, and again, you include another, these are great quotes that you include in the book to, to begin each chapter. And this one's from the great writer, Raymond Chandler. He writes, show business has always been like that. Any kind of show business. If these people didn't live intense and rather disordered lives, if their emotions didn't ride them too hard, well, they wouldn't be able to catch those emo emotions in flight and imprint them on a few feet of celluloid or project them across the footlights. That's just a brilliant, I think, explanation. I guess what the thing that makes them so brilliant in front of the camera is also what makes them so tragic. Yeah, and I think you, you, it's the reason why we find so many of these actors, the, the best actors, greatest actors, off screen are um, intense, erratic to be kind, uh, maybe you know a little off their rocker. Uh, and it, it's is that why they're able to be so captivating on screen? Somebody like a Jack Nicholson. You know, I, I don't know how that guy is in private life, but I'd seen a few film encounters with him, you know, and I don't know. It's hard to tell with a lot of these people where where the film ends and real life begins. And I think it's probably hard for them, too, because if they're used to playing, it's got to be tough if you, you know, if you're uh, you playing a serial killer or something like that and uh, to go off the screen and then go back to a normal life. I mean, I guess some people can do it. But others, I don't know. And I think, I think that, uh, you know, having maybe being um, unbalanced in some way, bipolar or something, maybe uh, those people are, are naturally have more confidence or, or maybe they're more outgoing. I don't know. Maybe they're, you know, that, that gives them, because it takes a lot just to go up on a stage and, and just to be able to speak loudly enough. You know, a lot of people can't project because there, there's something holding them back. Just be able to do that, let alone get into character and be able to put your, because you're putting yourself out there. You know, in a very small way, I'm doing that when I'm writing. You know, I'm putting myself out there for people, you know, opening up. And uh, a lot of people can't do that. But if you're, you know, you're on camera, you're putting yourself out there physically and you're, you know, you're, you're letting every, see, everyone see everything about you. 
it's, it, I think it's got to be hard to go back and adjust to a normal life after that. And I think a lot of them do struggle with that. I think that's why you see so many, you know, multiple marriages and uh, things like that and, and uh, maybe trouble off screen. But it's, to me, it makes a lot of sense because they're not living. That's why I think it's hilarious that some of them expect fans to be able to turn that worship on and off. You know, they see you sitting in a restaurant, you expect them to just let you have your privacy when that's the only time they're ever going to see you. Of course, they're going to go nuts that they see somebody that, you know, that is, you know, they worship as a star. Of course, they're going to run over and try to get their autograph or meet you. That's perfectly natural. A lot of them don't seem to understand that. They want to be able to turn, you know, when I'm on the red carpet, then I want you guys to go crazy. Act like it's the Beatles. But, uh, you know, if I'm out in a private setting, unless I welcome you over. So I, I think, but again, I think they're they're leading lives that are, we can't understand. I try to put myself in their place and I can't imagine what it's like. And I'm sure it's, it gets old, maybe not having any kind of privacy, but so there's a fine line there. But I think that's, you know, unfortunately, that's the, the, the price that comes with stardom. You know, you can't, you can't have people cheer for you and expect that they're going to treat you like, you know, you're anyone else. So I think a lot of that, just that, that aspect of it probably plays into many of the things you see that happen off screen and maybe plays into, uh, the fact that, what is it, uh, Oscar Wilde said, there are two tragedies in life. One is, to, is not to get your heart's desire, and the other is to get it. And, and so I, I think that's, you know, they got their heart's desire, and maybe they've, they've found out that it's, it's a tragedy and not the uh, On Borrowed Fame, money, mysteries, and corruption in the entertainment world. Do you have a favorite story in the, in the book when, while you were researching? Well, you know, there's a favorite. And I, I have to, you know, be... Um, I hate to keep being depressing about it because it's, but to me, there were so many things I discovered that I, I was amazed at one part and not really a story, but I was amazed at all the actors that are buried in unmarked graves. An astonishing number of them. Uh, I was amazed at uh, one of the saddest places in Hollywood is uh, it's a special section of uh, one of the big uh, mortuaries there where they keep uh, the remains of, and these were big actors, people like Thomas Mitchell, and uh, Edmund Gwen, who played you know, Santa and uh, you know, Miracle on 34th Street, whose ashes were never claimed by anyone. And they just sit there. And, I, you know, that's the kind of thing that, that boggles my mind because you know, these people were married. Is it everything? It's, it's, I, it's unfathomable that you would do that for your loved one. So that's what, of course, it's, it's a sad thing. And, of course, in, in the financial aspect, probably the most glaring example that I've used in every interview I've had, it just it shows what, I'm talking about when I'm ranting about the unfairness of, uh, of the, the financial compensation in the music and the, the uh, show business. Betty Davis, one of the biggest stars the industry ever had, died and left in a state of slightly under $1 million, which is very modest during her long career. Stephen Fetchett, who is uh, probably the, the st stereotypical caricature of uh, the way blacks were treated on screen back then, right? Never a big star. He was, you know, kind of a, you know, a, a caricature. He died with a $10 million fortune. Now, I can't think of a better example that you know, shows what I'm talking about in this book. What, that, how does that compute? And any, Betty Davis was not a drug addict. She didn't have to pay alimony to a much less. And, and Joan Crawford, I think, died with a pretty modest estate as well. And uh, Hedy Lamar died broke. Mickey Rooney died with a, left an $18,000 estate. He did have a lot of ex-wives. Meanwhile, Lulu who sang To Sir With Love, and that was, she has a $30 million fortune. So that's a big part of the book is, you know, for people, I mean, it, it, 
I can't solve it, but I, I think people will be interested in it because I'm interested in it. I, I don't understand how that can happen. Now, somebody like Jackson Brown, I think has $12 million for one of my favorites, wrote all his own material, long career, lots of big hits. He has $12 million. How does Lulu have $30 million? I, I just, I don't, and there are other examples like that. But I, I provide lots of them in the book. So I, I don't know if it's one story. I would like to, probably my favorite quote of the book is at the beginning of the chapter of Marilyn Monroe, who sports one of my favorites. When you think of a movie star, he's the first person that comes to my mind. She was more than an actress. She was a movie star, you know, presence. And it's a great quote there where she talks about uh, lots of other girls are, are dreaming, you know, dreaming of being a star, but I don't care. I'm dreaming the hardest. And I think that's just a brilliant, she was, you know, she was very intelligent. She was no, no, so that's my favorite quote of the book, I think, that, you know, dreaming the hardest. And uh, she got to be, and of course, you know, her death, I, I go into details as well, you know, it's one of the more notable kind of the JFK assassination of Hollywood. And a, and a possible connection with, with uh, Robert F. Kennedy. Do you think very quickly, do you think he was involved? Do you think he was there? No, I don't. I think, and I, the only, and of course, I'm a Kennedy fan front, so I, and I, people know that, but I, I think enough Kennedys have been killed. So I don't, I don't think they were in the killing business. Themselves. I, I personally think that she was killed as a warning and uh, that, you know, we can, we can kill the biggest movie star in the world. And, you know, somebody was doing something for him because I, because I read the book, I found out uh, decades later, Veronica Hamill, who was another person whose fame is gone, you know, who, who knows Veronica Hamill today? She was huge in the 80s, Hill Street Blues, uh, big enough to buy Marilyn Monroe's old house. But she bought the house where Marilyn Monroe died. And when they were doing work on it, they discovered a bunch of professional grade government wiretapping and surveillance equipment in the walls and the ceilings. Somebody professional was keeping track of Marilyn Monroe. Who? I don't know. But I think it just kind of lend credence to what a lot of us have been saying. I heard it. I think it was James Jesus Angleton. Well, he would. He, he was certainly. He certainly had his hands, fingers, in a lot of those pies. But uh, you know, he's it wouldn't surprise me. How do we get a copy of On Borrowed Fame? Uh, you go to you know. Uh, you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, it's Bear Manor Media. Uh, it's in all the usual places. And I always tell people, you know, suggest it for your libraries if you just want them to. You can read it there. Have them purchase the first collection. But it's search for it just find your best deal without all the uh, you know all the outlets you would find well it's just jam-packed with information i mean every page as you say there's just uh it's just a litany of 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 uh whoa but it's also great you know if you ever want to find out what happened to you yeah. know some of your your favorite uh, childhood actors and so forth it's all in here on borrowed fame money mysteries and corruption in the entertainment world and uh don always great to talk to you thank you so much for this Oh, thank you. It's always great to talk to you, Richard. Thanks for having me. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.